Six Figure Developer Podcast, a podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Eric Dietrich. Eric is CEO at Hit Subscribe, a unique marketing business that helps companies reach software engineers with content. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, so uh, before we sort of jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners little uh, introduction to yourself, uh, you know, tell them how you got started in the industry. Sure. Um, so if you're talking about, I guess, the college route, it was a pretty traditional path. I went to get my undergraduate degree and um, I got a degree in computer science and then went into the workforce as a software engineer. I did eventually go on to also get a master's degree in computer science while I was working. Um, but, you know, that's a pretty, I guess, straightforward path. The only hiccup there maybe was I graduated right in the teeth of the dot-com bubble bursting. So right about um, in December of 2001, I graduated a semester early, took some time off and traveled, and then expected to come and have you know a great job like everybody before me had gotten, and there was just nothing. So I actually wound up working at Radio Shack to pay the bills for a little while. Um, eventually things loosened up <laughs> and I got that first software job. So I guess that part's a little non-traditional, but otherwise it was go get the four-year CS degree and then and then work in the industry. What was the, what, what was the software that you were working on right off the bat, if you, if you don't mind? I went to work for a company that made mail sorting equipment. So it was a manufacturing company. And what I did there was actually, and I can, I think of this as fortunate, it was kind of eclectic. So in college, the languages that we used during my degree program were C and C++, and I got a little Java while I was in there. And so I started um, working on the software that was the control system for these machines, which was Linux. So I was doing some uh, a little bit of embedded development, um, kernel programming, like kind of low level stuff. But then fairly quickly, they were plugging me into different things. Like there were different machines associated with this mail sorting equipment. Some of them had like VB6 GUI. Um, so there was kind of stuff like that going on. Plus they did this whole overhaul of that old VB6 GUI using Java. What would they have been doing at the time? Swing. So there was some like Java GUI component stuff that I picked up. So pretty early on, I became a polyglot and I actually think that was accidental, but quite beneficial. So what uh, brought you to be this hit CEO or the, the CEO of hit subscribe? That's kind of a winding journey. Uh, so I spent, I, I kind of did the traditional like career org chart climbing, I guess, for a software engineer. So um, software engineering, then more senior titles, you know, roles like team leader, architect, and eventually management. My last salary job, I was the CIO of a, a small business. Um, so I ran the IT department there. And then I went off on my own and did um, kind of miscellaneous consulting, freelancing at first, but then it gained steam towards management consulting. So I started to do developer training. I was making videos for Pluralsight at the time. I had my own blog, deadtech.com, um, that had gained a following. And so I was doing this consulting, which I did for a number of years, but you'll probably pick up the thread in there of a lot of content creation, which I've always enjoyed. 
as I did that, I, it was a hundred percent travel, the management consulting stuff that I was doing. Um, and so what started to happen is I'd be in my hotel at night with not a lot better to do. Companies would reach out to me and say, Hey, would you be willing to write for pay for our blog? Uh, I don't know, five, six, seven of these companies that eventually it kind of, no matter how dense I might've been, it banged me in the head, like this might be a business. So my wife who did graphic design a little bit like dabbled, but was a professional editor by trade. We figured that we could join together and pretty easily make it done for you content service. Original idea was that that would be supplemental to my consulting, but there's so much demand for content that it just kind of took off and here we are. So that was how I backed my way in from a whole career in, in tech into marketing. It was kind of accidental and fortuitous. Wow. That's pretty cool. Do you, I, I, I assume you're really enjoying that. I mean, it has its um, pros and cons, I guess. I enjoy, um, like, building a business is almost like being an architect or building a system. Um, and so I've learned a lot of different things. Some are fun, you know, like about scaling businesses, marketing, how certain sales things works. Some aren't, like, I know more than I ever wanted to about tax codes in different states. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got its ups and downs. I'll tell you the one thing I miss when I look back at, at my career is kind of the flow state that's associated with, I mean, programming by and large for me for lots of years. But, you know, anything I do that was heavily concentrating these days, it's lots of meetings. I handle our sales. So it can feel a little fragmented. So it's, you know, got its pros and cons. What was the transition like from your your last uh, corporate gig, I guess, or, or last full-time gig to transitioning and, and starting and running your own, uh, your own company? Uh, scary. Um, <laughs> it was sort of gradual. So I, I, when I was in grad school, I was doing that while I was working. And that was, when did I finish that? Like in, 2011, somewhere around there. And when that finished, I had this sort of vacancy in my, in my time. So I started the business dead tech as an LLC and I would moonlight a little bit. And the reason I mentioned that is because I had been doing some moonlighting. I'd created videos or courses for Pluralsight and done some application development, moonlighting a few different things in my spare time. So when I went full-time independent, I didn't have to figure out how to start a business and to a business bank account. So I'd kind of had training wheels for it. Nevertheless, giving notice at that job where I was the CIO um, and realizing that I didn't have another job lined up and I was just going to be on my own. It was exhilarating, kind of scary moments of what am I doing? This is crazy. Um, it was also softened by going on retainer with my former employer for a while as they hired another CIO. So um, that helped. And then I started out doing a fair bit of subcontracting work at the time. So that also made it easier to, to get business. But yeah, it was, um, I'm kind of actually risk averse, which sounds weird for someone going off on their own, but um, it was not like, oh man, this is all going to be great. I'm so excited. <laughs> a lot of ups and downs with that. Yeah. I would imagine there's, there's quite a lot of stories involved in that. And, and as you mentioned, you, you do you have done a fair amount of writing. You've, you've got a couple of books under your belt as well. And uh, just looking at the, the latest post on Dead Tech, the why I do high quality work is both good policy and terrible positioning. Uh, <laughs> sounds like there, there's an interesting story there. It sounds like there's probably some interesting stories uh, along the, the path to where you are now. Yeah, that's fair. It's I'm a little embarrassed that that's the most recent post on there because it was from some months ago. Um, we recently had a, a baby, 
And so I kind of hunkered down into only what's necessary mode. I haven't been <laughs> doing a lot of blogging lately, but um, yeah, that's kind of emblematic. I think of the contrarian takes on a lot of things I developed over the years um, when it came to software. Um, and I'm just trying to think of like the, the, the journey along these lines, but having figured out a lot of different things, um, I guess when I think about that post in particular and a common theme that I figured out is that um, going into business for myself, like when you're applying for salary jobs, um, there's, you kind of want to, you know, stand out um, almost as if you were taking a standardized test. You want to be in like the top 10% of applicants or whatever it may be. Um, so the story behind that post and a lot of things I've written is discovering how different it is if you're going into business for yourself and you're trying to differentiate yourself, um, whether it's, uh, services like freelancing or productized services, it's not that clients don't care if you do good work, but they expect it. It's table stakes. And so it starts to become a lot more about what can you do for them? Like the story flips around and, and the client is sort of the hero of, of the story rather than the service provider. And um, it's been an interesting and sort of meandering journey into figuring that out. Cause I can look back like when I first went off on my own and um, I was trying to position myself with freelancing kind of the way you would like with a job, which is like, I've got this set of skills are, you know, I've got these accolades, I've done these impressive things, uh, hire me. And that works after a fashion. But over the years, I realized how much better it works. If you go to people and say, this is what I can do for you. You know, I can earn you this return on your investment or build you this thing or what have you. So it's been interesting figuring that out. Yeah. You know, I, I would imagine that a lot of those communications, a lot of that communication can also be beneficial to those in a corporate setting. Like, you know, if, if I'm on a team delivering features for a business unit, I would, I would expect that they don't really care or, or they would expect that it's, it's going to function properly. It's going to function quickly. What, what they're more interested in is the value that you're going to be delivering the, the capabilities that you can add to their system. Yeah. I mean, I think if I'm thinking of career advice for like salaried people, one of the best, pieces of career advice I think I could offer would be um, make your boss look good, which sounds like kind of <laughs> almost cynical, but like if you figure out what this person who I, I like to, I like to normalize across everything this way by saying, if you go to work at a salaried job, you have one client and you really need that client and your boss is, you know, the, the person <laughs> who represents that client. And so in a sense, it's the same thing. Like I, I say this as a management consultant, I always thought of it as my, my job was to make the person signing the checks to me look good to their board of directors, to their CEO, whoever it was. Um, and so I think there is indeed a lot of overlap there. And to your point, it's not just the boss. Um, it could be, yes, people, you know, a product manager or whoever's, um, uh, a stakeholder in the work that you're doing, the more you're able to externalize the value of what you're doing and saying, here's what's in it for you. Here's how I can help you. Um, that makes it a lot easier to, I mean, earn promotions and, and do things that are good for your career, but also um, to kind of win friends and influence people. If you will, you get, you know, allies when you help people out. So I think there's, yeah, a lot of lessons to be drawn there. And you, you had mentioned before we started recording that uh, you, you have a, a background in IT management and, and particularly with static code analysis or static analysis. Mm -hmm. any, any stories from, from that time? 
Oh, plenty. Um, I guess so for background, what happened was um, when I went off on my own, at first I was doing some developer training. I had an interesting subcontracting arrangement for a while where I was doing what we were at the time calling craftsmanship coaching. So going into enterprises where they had adopted all of the project management aspects of, of Scrum, but left behind all the practitioner aspects of extreme programming. Like, um, so the, the failure pattern there was, hey, we're having daily standups. Why aren't we shipping code any faster? So <laughs> we came in to do, um, to teach people to do test-driven development, continuous integration, you know, the, the, the practices to kind of keep up with those uh, process aspects. And that's kind of where things started. And, and that was actually a blast. It was like all the mentorship aspects of leadership without the performance reviews and the HR stuff that I wasn't as much of a fan of. Um, but what started to happen there is I was proficient with static analysis. There was a tool, Endepend, that I swear by to this day. And I would use it to basically, um, it had this code query language that you could use to run essentially ad hoc relational style queries on code bases. And... Um, there's also a companion product, uh, CPP dependent one called J Architect. So you can use the same technology across .NET, Java, and C++. And um, I don't remember how it started at first, but people in management at some of these enterprises I would go to would ask, essentially, like, what should we do? We have this decision to make about a code base. And instead of doing sort of an expert review, if you will, where it's just, you know, hey, I have a lot of experience. Here's what I think. I'd go gather data and say, should you, you know, rip out this old library that you're using? Whoa, not so fast. You uh, are taking a dependency on this from like 40% of your code base. And the more I started to do that, it was hard to articulate this in market, but through word of mouth, it would come up where more and more folks would say, hey, you should talk to Eric if you have a decision about a code base. Um and so this led, especially as I was subcontracting, I would get calls, whether it was a company that was going to go in and do some kind of um, either remediation or extension of an existing piece of code, they would want to send me in to get the lay of the land and make sure they weren't signing up for trouble. And so this led to all sorts of like amazing things that I got to see in code bases like these. Uh, it, it would sometimes be hard to keep a poker face. Um because I'd go in and it seems like inevitably see something that I just couldn't believe people were doing. And that's actually like more common I discovered. So you would think that over the years, as I started to do more and more of this, I would get snottier, but actually it had the opposite effect. And I was like, man, people are doing really weird things everywhere. <laughs> so um, I'm trying to think like of some doozies. Um, you know, just their code generation schemes that seemed like leftover from the 2000s where it was just spitting out uh, ungodly amounts of like ORM style code. Um, there was one place they were, um, they were essentially doing their security by like generating SQL that they would, um, that they would, I, I think, parameterize sometimes, but they would generate the SQL and then read it like out of a file and query the database with it. And that was the security because it established some sort of multi-tenancy, if you will, on the fly with the, I mean, just some of the things where, where I would be there in a meeting seeing this for the first time and think, <laughs> you know, trying to keep a straight face where I'd be saying, you're, you're doing what, what now? Now I've, I've done a lot of consulting, a lot of contract work myself, and I thought I had seen some things, but perhaps uh, once it's, 
okay to do so, we, we should get together and have a beer or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I guess, opposite of survivorship bias, I would always get specifically a call when, I mean, there was a decision to be made, but nobody was calling me to tell me how great their code was. So it was usually like, it seems like we can't go on. Like, is there a path or back or do we need to get rid of all of this? Or why is our program a year behind schedule? So I was typically seeing things that had pretty unique problems. Um, not always. There were some times where I was being called in as kind of a precautionary situation. And I'd say like, you, you know, you're actually doing pretty well. And as I started to do more and more of these, I'd start to catalog them in a private database where I was gathering stats on the code bases. And then I started to like robo analyze open source code bases so that I could say, uh, you're in about the, you know, 70th percentile of method complexity, like your code base is more complex than the average code base. Um, and usually, even if somebody was really kind of off the rails in some category, they'd be all right in others. Like, I don't know that I ever saw just like the worst code base you've ever seen, but there are always interesting things. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, surely if they're bringing you in, it's it's to it, it's with a purpose and they're willing to pay your fee, pay your your stipend, pay your whatever it is to, to costing them to bring you in. Mm-hmm. So at some point the application was functioning. The, the application was working. It was providing some kind of value. Mm-hmm. So we, we can't discount that. Well, uh, almost always there was once <laughs> or twice where they had never actually put it in production. And the question was, do we give up? Mm-hmm. But even there, I would say there was value contributed. There was knowledge contributed to the system, but, um, what, what were some of the statistics that you either, I, I, I guess uh, Maybe it's a two-part question, but what were the, some of the ones that you sort of like um, identified there and say, hey, these are big indicators that we could take specific actions on? or And then maybe even rolling that back a little bit, were, did, you, did you, when you looked at some of the statistics and things that you, that like quantif- quantitative numbers that you're, that you're pulling out, uh, were there specific actions that you say, okay, well, I see this method complexity, so therefore we need to take X action? Or is it more like um, y- we see this relative value, so we sort of have an idea of whereabouts you you fall in in, in the relative scope of, of code that's out there? So is there specific actions that come off of numbers or is that just a, the static analysis allows you to s- sort of better sell a particular path forward in the, but that path forward is specific to that code. I'm trying to kind of think like broadly because, um, it would sometimes vary by engagement and, you know, talking about it, I miss this practice cause it was always fun and interesting. Generally, um, what I started to do, especially as the offering became more mature is I would go in and it was fairly straightforward for me to run an assessment of the code base, like this would not take much time. And to say like, here's where you score in all these kind of categories. We started to categorize the, um, the code bases. And so there, the big indicators that I would like to talk about just as a vanilla assessment would be, um, generally speaking complexity. Um, and I started to look at things like dependency snarl, and try to assess like, you know, rolling up some metrics into a composite, like how risky is this code base? Um, 
how expensive the change will it be or how degenerative will it be? So I'd, I'd have to go back. It's been a couple of years now since I did a lot of work on this, but we, um, and I actually worked with some people for a little while to define, we, we did some statistical analysis, like PCR analysis to see like what correlated with these code bases. So we'd try, uh, um, I mean, it was always me doing the consulting and analysis. So I would try to, have these kind of stock pieces of assessment, but almost without exception, they were asking a specific question or set of questions. So sometimes that would be like, how's our team doing? Um, you know, there were cases where um, they had hired an architect who had given them some direction. And then there was, you know, is this direction good? Or are we headed down a good path? Or those were always kind of hard because I didn't really want to be in the business of evaluating like a person's decisions. Um, but I remember answering a question like a team was, they had decided this sort of the classic, like we've made such a mess in this other code base. We need to start over. They had started over. And the question was, are we doing things materially differently? Or are we going to get back into this mess? No. And, the and so the quantification <laughs> really helped because I was like, look across all these different vectors, you're not doing anything materially differently, no matter what these excited folks are telling you, you're still not writing tests or, um, uh, writing methods that are substantially less complex or managing dependencies any better. So yeah, you're using some new GUI framework, but under the hood, you're not doing anything differently. Um, sometimes it would be, um, should we evolve away from this technology or can we evolve away from this technology? And so on top of the stock analysis, I might, I think I alluded to this earlier, say, um, how much of the code base depends and on what degree on this. So how many um, say classes are taking a direct dependency on this library, how many classes are taking like an indirect, you know, second or third degree dependency. And thus we can look at what kind of risk do you have from ripping this thing out of your code base? So it really ran the gamut. And if I look back now that I know a lot more about marketing, um, I should have probably landed on some like specific positioning and like, I help answer this question or whatever, but the variety was fun. It would just be, I had no idea how to market this, but word of mouth worked. And they were like, Oh, you, you know, if you're wondering X about your code base, then here's this guy you should call. Yeah. So I, I know Clayton's got a, a question here, but just, I want to kind of pry a little bit deeper. The, the, how, how did you stop doing this or, or, or was that when you sort of made your, your switch and you just started tur- turning those things down or did you, look into like handing this off to some, you know, creating some tooling or something like that training to, to help other people. Because I got to imagine that this particular is still a major question <laughs> that a lot of people have and, and a big concern. So it never stopped all at once. It just kind of um, faded with time because what started to happen, I'm trying to think of exactly when this would have been. I uh, hit subscribe. My wife and I founded this business in about 2017 and it was probably only about 2019 that I said, I'm doing this full time. But what started to happen is it grew enough that my attention was kind of always on it. And I went into full passive mode. So I was only doing consulting when people would reach out to me. And given that I was really not, um, doing anything to make that happen. A lot of my contacts, especially in places where I might have subcontracted, um, started to kind of scatter to the winds and I wasn't doing anything to keep up or um, let people know what I was doing. So the opportunities just became less and less. It wasn't until maybe a year ago that I actually started to turn down things that came in just because I didn't have time. 
Um, so I never really buttoned it up into any tooling that somebody else could use. Um, the closest I came to doing that was um, at a business partner where we were talking about taking a version of this and specifically going at the field of mergers and acquisitions and saying, hey, you're about to make an acquisition. And I, one of the things that blew me away as we were doing market research for this maybe three years ago is when an acquisition happens, if there's any diligence on a code base of the acquired company whatsoever, it's basically like, does is there code? Like, I mean, what the big consulting firms do for these mergers and acquisitions is nothing. So what we were talking about like blew their mind, but the trouble was none of their like competitors were doing it. So there's a real expense. And it was kind of like, well, there's no immediate cause for us to do this. Cause you know, one of our big four competitors here or whatever, isn't doing this. So like, why would I do it? Um, but that's probably a growth industry because that lack of diligence is just stunning to me that you could inherit, you know, tens of millions of lines of code. That's just a disaster. And, and nobody's raising a flag to adjust the valuation down there. That sounds like <laughs> standard operating procedure. Um, <laughs> so, so developers are, are, um, or tend to be somewhat somewhat prideful in their code. Uh, like So certainly if you've been working on an application for a long time, even if you created it, you might be like, this application sucks. Um, or if somebody else made it and then you've inherited it, this application sucks. Uh, but the reasoning is different, right? Like if it's something you inherited, it sucks, the code was bad, that person made terrible decisions, we should rewrite it. If it's something that you wrote, well, the business gave me bad information. They keep changing their minds, yada, yada, yada. My code's perfect. It's just that the business doesn't know what's going on. So when the business brings you in mm -hmm. or brought you in, it's in past tense, um, to analyze the code, and then you look at the code and you start making suggestions such as TDD or CICD or, or you know, refactoring the dependencies and restructuring the architecture, how was that received by the developers and the business? It varied a lot, and I learned a lot over the years. So as you might imagine, the default posture of a team, like, I mean, for anyone listening, imagine that your team brings in a consultant, and then imagine there's messaging that's like you're doing things wrong. That's, you know, <laughs> I found myself in some very interesting situations over the years. I'm trying to remember the most interesting one how did this shape up exactly but it involved me i didn't know this was where this was going a subcontractor brought me in and it was um, an offshoot of what i had mentioned earlier where i was talking about um are we doing anything materially different in like version 2.0 so somebody this was at a large bank and um somebody saw this analysis i was doing and basically wanted me to do a deep dive on um risks, if you will, in their like existing larger code base, which I did. This got teed up somehow into me giving a talk to an auditorium full of their engineers at this company, essentially about like all these things you're doing wrong. That might have been the most awkward moment. But even there, um, so to go in and say you should be test driving your code or, um, you know, you need to break this up, you're uh, too monolithic, There, all these things. It wasn't universally poorly received. In fact, there were champions in there that came up to me after this talk that I wasn't thrilled about having to give. Like this was not where I was looking to go with the engagement. Um, but people that were like right on, you know, I've been trying to tell people this for a long, long time. Um, so there's a lot of interesting political optics to stuff that might go on like this, um, where obviously 
uh, people wouldn't be receptive if, if, if it's the people that wrote this code or made these decisions. So it can vary a lot if I go in and the original team that built it was all gone and everybody had inherited it. They didn't have as much skin in the game. But I learned some tactics um, to really... So by the end of this, it was never received particularly poorly, even when you think it might be. One of the things I would do when I would come in is to say, like, um, I, I would want to interview the folks on the team and talk to them and just listen to them. So, you know, what's going on? What do you think of the code? And inoculate against a, um, you know, an overly bad reaction by saying, like, look, I'm not here to tell you you did things wrong. People that write software for a living are intelligent people. Intelligent people generally make good decisions. I cannot possibly speak to what delivery pressure you faced over the last three years, who is coming in to tell you to do what or inject what shortcuts into the code. I don't know what goofball you had working here three years ago that left. I don't know any of that. <laughs> I just have a bunch of source code and a version history that I can look at, but that doesn't speak to the decisions you were making. I'm not here to judge that. And after a while too, I started to refuse engagements where it was like, tell me you know, who on my team is good or bad, or I didn't want to do that. Um, so inoculating against it by kind of saying that, like, I'm not here to judge the decisions that were made. I'm just here to talk about the code. And then the other big one was to say, not your code has a lot of dependency snarl. Your code has more, has a higher degree per class or per method of internal dependencies than 80% of code bases. That's hard to argue with. It's not a judgment call. So I learned that the more data-driven I was, the less people would argue and the more the conversation would be productive. What do we do next? What do you recommend? How do people mitigate this in the situation? So it, yeah, it would seem like it could be awful. And there were cases that were super awkward, but um, I did get fairly good at over the years at saying like, look, I'm not here um, to tell people they've made bad decisions. Yeah, before we start to wrap up here, I, I wanted to switch gears just a little bit to, about kind of your uh, your career progression. Uh, it seems like developers, um, at least a, a lot of the ones that we speak with and, and ourselves included, got into software development because we wanted to make pro- we wanted to make games. We wanted to program mm-hmm. games. Uh, we wanted to make cool things. We wanted to have fun. We wanted to create things, and it seems like. Uh, a lot of those in the industry are uh, progressing in their careers and looking for advancement and, and being promoted into architectural roles or into managerial roles or leaving the industry altogether. Maybe they're going out and becoming independent. Maybe they're switching gears completely. Maybe they have, maybe they got hit on the head and, and figured out that there was the, the, a, an opportunity that they were already kind of doing uh, in your your writing and marketing and 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 like what should those that are that are looking for next steps or, or what should those of us that out there what should we be on the lookout for to recognize those opportunities and and look for taking uh, calculated risks hmm I think the first thing I would suggest to anyone, especially if I imagine giving advice to myself, however many years ago would be to take honest stock of like what it is that you want. And what I mean is when I started to take more responsibility, um, you know, team leadership, senior engineer, and then management, I kind of always had this idea that if I just earned the next promotion and I was, you know, the lead developer or the manager or whatever, 
a big part of that was that nobody would then tell me what to do. Like I could make the decisions and I wouldn't have somebody who was there for 20 years, but didn't seem to really know much say, well, I've been here for a long time and we're not unit testing because I've never needed that before. And I always kind of thought if I got that next promotion, um, nobody could tell me that. And then even as a CIO, that small business was owned by a man with whom I have some deep philosophical and ethical disagreements. So I came to realize that even <laughs> in a C-suite role, somebody can still tell you what to do. And I, at the time I had kind of concluded, like I must be an outdoor cat and I just can't work for other people or something. If I had been more introspective and, and thought about like, what do I actually want out of getting promoted? Then I might've even at that time said, well, I can just go freelance and be more gig oriented and maybe continued, you know, to enjoy the work a day life of programming and being in a flow state. So I think the first thing I would do is kind of size up, like, why do you want to get ahead? Because that might start to speak to what opportunity coming along looks like, um, as opposed to just kind of advancing because somebody comes along and says, do you want to be a manager? And like, whatever answer you give there might be okay. So if, if you get promoted to dev manager, you're going to earn more money. And if what you want to do is earn money and try to retire young, then great. Um, so I think it's kind of a matter of understanding what sort of opportunity you want and then looking for it when it comes along. So when hit subscribe, for instance, came along, um, I was looking for a way to uh, get down from 100% travel and to build a business that was uh, something I could build equity in and expand beyond just me. Whereas consulting, while lucrative, it was, you know, as soon as I stopped being at the client side or doing the engagements, it was done. So um, I don't know if that's the most like meaty and tangible answer, but I think that. Um, I guess maybe to put a little more meat on the bones, if you figure out what it is you're looking for specifically and then envision that role and you can kind of reverse engineer what you should be doing. So if you want to be in management, um, look for opportunities to do leadership types of things, even if they're not directly in your job description. If you want to like um, open up an opportunity that combines two disciplines like content creation and software engineering, well, okay, what do people who are good at that, who have a large following or who are earning money through content, what are they doing? And what can I start doing to get there? So hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> Very cool. Maybe not uh, per- perfectly applicable to to the last bit of our, our conversation, but uh, for our listeners, w- some of the things we mentioned, static analysis, uh, we mentioned TDD, uh, uh, um, some other like uh, you know disciplines and 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 whatnot. Uh, are, do you have any resources to direct people to where they can kind of kind of pick those things up? Um, I I don't know as much today what people are doing, but like. Back when I was learning all of that, um, I'm trying to remember, there was, was it Kent Beck who wrote like TDD by example? I read a number of books. Um, there was the the series by Bob Martin, like The Clean Code, The Clean Coder. So I picked up and read a lot of books. I feel like, I mean, this was like a decade ago. So I feel like there might be more salient examples of where to go these days um, that are forum oriented or like people's blogs. Um, but a lot of those books are classics and I imagine they're standing the test of time. We've got uh tapir 2342 asking, uh, I'm working as a backend en- engineer, but for the third time, it's turning more into 80% infrastructure at this point. The actual software that brings value is relatively easy. 
Sorry for the serious question. What what do I do if my job is turning into basically doing DevOps and or SRE when I like to program? The thing that occurs to me there is like there's got to be a moment um, where you ask like, is there a path to what you want to be doing at your current job or not? Um, and I, keep in mind for what it's worth, I was always kind of a serial job hopper. Like I had no problem doing it. So I'm not <laughs> trying to give that advice lightly, but there may be a path back to doing more traditional application development. And I would think on what that looks like. So number one, does the opportunity for that exist? Like, would that actually add value to the organization? Um, Could you make a case, you know, whether it's to your boss or to whoever that you do need more of that? So maybe it's just that you are being pigeonholed into that role and somebody else is getting to do the app dev. um, And then it would be kind of an HR matter. Like, this is what I want to be doing. Um, if not, like if if the real value is in the infrastructure stuff, then you would be kind of forcing the hand of someone in the organization to say, I want to be doing this, even though we don't really have a business case. And that's not going to end well for anyone. So I, I think it's a question of like assessing the situation and seeing, is there a way to do this? And then pitch that. Um, and if there is a way to be doing that, like the organization above you, um, assuming it's a decent organization, they're going to want to keep you happy. So there might be a deal you could strike or a path back there or what have you. Um, So I would, I guess, three steps if I were going to summarize it. The first thing is to take a look yourself before you start asking questions and assess whether there is room for you to be doing application development. If the answer to that is no, then you probably need to look for another job. If the answer to that is yes, then you need to start thinking about how you approach your boss with a plan to get back there. And ideally, like I was saying earlier, think of how to make your boss look good um, in a way that's kind of a win for everybody, you know, make the case for why it makes sense for you to do that. In a similar vein, um, what's been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those maybe looking to level up their own career? The, the, the biggest piece of advice I think I could offer for someone getting started would be, like kind of a trust, but verify with like senior engineers in your organization. When you go into the organization, um, there are going to be a lot of people with a lot more experience that you, that you can learn from. Absolutely do that for better, for worse early in your career. It's easier to ask a lot of questions. I mean, anybody at a good company should be able to ask lots of questions, but it does get harder when people expect more out of you. So rely on those folks, learn all that you can from them, but don't treat the senior engineers as if they were, infallible because (laughs) what you will find is there are a lot of calcified opinions, a lot of people who seem impressive, but maybe aren't when the rubber meets the road. So um, (laughs) without getting too deep into it, I guess like open your mind to the possibility that, that like the people you're learning from don't know everything and they may be opinionated when it's not always justified. So Seek whatever kind of outside corroboration you can. Um, I think that would be like early going career advice as for how to level up in your career. One thing that I might say that seems odd is that I think that there can be diminishing returns to what I'll call pure programming skill or pure technician skill. So you go into the industry thinking that like, uh, I'm going to get a job. And then in year zero to year one, you're obviously going to get way better at your craft. Same thing in year one to year two, et cetera. But While you can keep getting better indefinitely, the amount that that starts to pay off in your wallet and in career advancement will start to diminish after a fashion. And then there's other skills that become important that are 
pure programming. Um, mentorship is going to be a big one. So there's a limit to how far you can go. If you're um, actively, if you're one of those people I was kind of talking about, that's like um, overly opinionated and discouraging newer developers versus if you're mentoring them and bringing them along, there's a lot of value there. Um, so I, I guess leveling up your career, I would look at a broader spectrum of things you can supplement being good at programming with. And, and almost like I come to think of it this way that after a bunch of years in the industry, like, of course, I'm a pretty good programmer. That's kind of table stakes. Like you ought to be. So think about what you can layer on top of that. I don't know what you're talking about. My programming is perfect and I don't make mistakes. (laughs) You're very encouraging. I am very encouraging to other people. (laughs) You can encourage them right out of the job too. (laughs) Amy's humble too. (laughs) Uh, so where can our listeners go to follow you as, and keep up with what you're working on? The kind of one-stop shop there is my site, deadtech.com, which is D-A-E-D-T-E-C-H.com. Um, it does seem a little dormant. I am, however, uh, been a content creator for more than a decade. So like there will be content there again. It's the easiest place. It'll somewhere on there in the about have my social media and stuff. I'm not overly active there either. Um, we also, this is coming soon. So if you hang out at dead tech, um, uh, you'd see it there or on Twitter. I'm at dead tech. Um, I'll tweet about it, but we're going to open up the hit subscribe community kind of soon. Right now we have something like 200 engineers in there that are uh, moonlighting and doing side hustle blogging. That's the nature of our business is, uh, engineers writing blog posts, but we're going to grow the community beyond that to include kind of anybody that wants to freelance or side hustle or just is interested in those topics. And we're going to have um, a bunch of content in there for the community, like internally, you know, invoice templates, like how to get started with things like that. Uh, we haven't opened that up just yet, but that's coming. And um, if you if you follow me like dead tech um the site or like my twitter you'll see when that comes by um so i'm excited about that and that is like no cost or anything and i mention that as a place to keep up with me because these days in that business hit subscribe in our slack that's where i'm generally the most active excellent excellent yeah so all of that and a newborn home sounds like you're keeping pretty busy these days i think that's fair to say i do feel fairly busy Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with us today. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. That was Eric Dietrich. Eric is CEO at HitSubscribe, a unique marketing business that helps companies reach software engineers with content. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at SixFigureDev.com. Catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Ah.